If you have your Bibles with you, let's open up to Isaiah chapter 32, and we'll begin our continuing journey through the book of Isaiah. So as we come, remember, first 39 chapters, first first half, it's not exactly the half, but that's what we'll call it. First half of Isaiah is focused on a particular concept, and that is learning to trust God as King, that He is our Deliverer. And that we don't need anything or anybody else. Now that's a lesson that the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, particularly for our nation, I think we're pretty sure if we get just the right candidate at just the right time, we'll have just the right government and everything will be good again. And in reality, if we pay attention to what Daniel told us, Daniel told us that all the kingdoms of men fail. That man has this, we've even learned it, right, through history. Haven't we learned that man has this propensity when he finds power to grow corrupt? And whether or not the, the concepts that he had before power were, were uh, wicked, had wicked intent at the time or not, that occurs. So we see this idea that... Um, Mankind is not <clears throat> capable of governing himself the way he ought to. And as long as we're looking for something else to be our savior, whether that be a Republican Party, the, the Constitutionalist Party, the Democratic Party, the Green Party, whatever party you think is going to save us, um, every one of them may have good intent. But they are all still human beings. And the one thing all human beings have in common, according to Daniel, is we crumble when we have power. It doesn't, we don't stay. Um, was it, I want to say it's Robert Frost. Might not be Robert Frost. Who wrote Nothing Gold Stays? Anybody remember? Get a bonus. Extra donut on Sunday. Um, but the concept of the poem is that is, you know, exactly what Daniel told us. The head of gold became what? Chest of silver became what? Body of bronze became what? Legs of iron became what? Iron mixed with clay to the point where it couldn't stand anymore. And all of that shows the decline of mankind in rebellion against God. So mankind in rebellion against God is not capable to govern himself. He won't be just. He won't be holy. He won't be righteous. Can we recognize that in our world today? You know, I don't, I don't know how far man's willing to stoop or fall, but it seems like every time I turn on the news, there's something a little lower than it was before. So in Isaiah 32, and over and over again throughout Isaiah, Isaiah gives us a picture of what a, a, a king's supposed to look like. What does a righteous king look like? What does a righteous leader look like? And all those descriptions are ultimately pointing us to Christ. So it's easy for us to understand, in, in lieu of scriptures like Isaiah 32, why the disciples would be getting stoked for Jesus to take over on their way to Jerusalem, right? In their mind, they're not headed to a crucifixion. They're headed to the coronation. So they, did, they didn't recognize that extra step. First half of Isaiah deals with a righteous king. Second half of Isaiah 
deals with the suffering servant. Once you have the righteous king, maybe they stopped reading. I don't know. But they didn't correlate the idea of the, of the uh, suffering servant. So he begins with what will happen. Isaiah 32. What will happen under the reign of the king of righteousness? This is what we're looking at. Behold, the king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. And one of the premium things that God talks about when he talks about government, when he talks about the function of government, is that the function of government is to um, deal with the evildoer, to provide justice for the people. We don't do that very well. And when justice isn't provided for the people, God says that the blood of the innocent pollutes the ground. And eventually that ground is polluted to the point that God judges, that the nation is judged by the Lord. So, but, but when the righteous king comes, he says the princes, the people ruling alongside the king, right? The people who are, who are with him, who are part of that government, will rule in justice. We don't have justice today. We all know of, I can't remember the, the story, it's been so long ago that I, that I watched the documentary, but there was, I, I shared on it on a Sunday, there was a young man who uh, just happened to be out at night, wasn't particularly a good person, but he hadn't done anything, and uh, he was 15, and he got picked up, and somebody had said somebody um, had stolen their backpack, and so he got picked up for possible burglary of a backpack, and he did three years in Rikers before he had a trial. That's the opposite of justice. A 15-year-old did three years in Rikers. And when they finally figured it out, three years later, you know what they did? They let him go. Oh, sorry. Yeah, what is that? Oh, well, I'll tell you what it's not. That is not justice. It's not justice. We don't have justice. I, you and I, we all know, right? I, I don't know. Um, um, I hear stories like the one about that guy that's in the making of a murder. I don't know he did it or he didn't. I don't know. I wish I did. But one day there will be a king that you can't lie to. One day there will be a king who knows what you did or didn't do. One day there will be princes who rule with him and there will be justice. The point or the purpose of this scripture is to tell us there is a day coming when good is going to triumph over evil, when evil will be put down once and for all. And when that happens, there will be no more injustice. There will be no more corrupt government. Is that okay with everyone? Uh, you know, the, the fact that, we, that, that, that that government will be perfect, but when the government's perfect, it's because the king is righteous. And I don't care how hard we try, there's not going to be a human righteous ruler. But there will be when Jesus Christ rules and reigns. Verse 2, he says, Each will be like a hiding place from the wind and a shelter from the storm. So not only will we have righteous leaders, but there will be refuge for everyone. Every person is going to have a place to hide from the storm. Every person is going to have a place of shelter, a place of protection we don't experience that today 
Everybody doesn't have a place. You and I, we may have a place. But the world is full of people who don't. They don't have a place of protection. But under the righteous king, there will be refuge for all. And the next thing that he talks about, not only will there be refuge for all, but it will be like a shade of a great rock on a weary land. It will be like streams of water in a dry place. So not only is there protection from the harsh things, but there's also provision. Right? So what do you need on a hot day? A little shade. What do you need when you're thirsty? Something to drink. Currently in our world, everybody who's hungry doesn't get something to eat, right? Not even in our nation. Everybody who's hungry doesn't get something to eat. Probably the biggest dividing line between the two political parties that we have today is uh, it's at least uh, presumptuously the idea of one wanting to care for the poor and, and the other supposedly not. Well, the point being, no matter how long we've been arguing, we've been in the country for over 200 years, and we've been arguing about it for 200 years, and guess what? The hungry is still hungry. So, you know, at some point, all our, all our gum flapping's not working out, right? But the day when the righteous king comes, and the just princes, and the government of God that, that God has laid upon his shoulder, on that day, there's not going to be hungry There won't be thirsty. There won't be people who don't have shade or don't have protection from the elements. He goes on to say, not only that, but those people in those days, those people who experience that, are going to be receptive. Look at verse 3. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed. Now when Isaiah, if you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah comes face to face with his own frailty, right? His own brokenness as a human being. And God says, I need somebody to go tell the people. I wonder who will go for us. And Isaiah says, we remember? Here am I, what? Here am I, send me. But God, so God says, I'm going to send you. But they have eyes, but they don't want to see. They have ears, but they don't want to hear. They won't see, they won't perceive, they won't hear, they won't understand. But you go and tell him anyway. Now he says when the king rules, the the eyes won't be closed. The eyes won't be closed because they want to see. They want to perceive the king. They want the king who's there. The ears of those who hear will give attention. No dull hearing, no blind eyes. When the king rules and reigns, no blind eyes, no deaf ears. And then There's no place for the fool. Look at verse 4. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. The tongue of the stammerer will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will not be called noble, nor nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. No place for the fool anymore. No place for the scoundrel. No place for the skeptic. No place for the unbeliever. When the king rules and reigns. Now, We look at this, and I think Isaiah is discussing it in terms of when Jesus Christ rules and reigns as king over the nation, ultimately over the world. But I think the same thing can be said when he rules as king over your heart. That all these things, that in in a spiritual sense, all these things can be true when he's king of your heart. When, When my knee is bowed to him, I want to be just. 
I want to be righteous. I want to do what's right, right? Don't we, don't we want to do that when we're serving the king? And don't I recognize when Jesus is king of my life that I have a, a shelter? It's him. He's my shelter. The Bible would declare he's my strong tower. What about my provision? Isn't he my provision? So we have all these things that we see on a physical level, looking the nation looking for the rulership within a government, happen in a spiritual way for the believer whose life is committed to the king. Is he your king? Does the righteous king reign in your heart? Or do you reign? I know the difference when I reign. So did Paul. In Romans chapter 7, how did Paul describe the difference between when the king reigns and when he reigns? He said, the things I know I ought to do, I don't do those things. The things I'm pretty sure I shouldn't do, those are the things I do. Who will save me from this body of death? And then what does he proclaim at the end of chapter 7? I thank God for Jesus Christ, because he's the one, when he's king, who delivers me from, from my own poor government within my life. We, we see how these two ideas flow together. I hope we can pick it up. Next we see the consequences un, until, okay, the king isn't reigning yet. Well, what's going to happen? What occurs in our life when there, when there isn't a king of righteousness? <clears throat> he says, well, in verse 6, the fool speaks folly. Now, what is it that the fool says? That's right. The Bible's told us, right? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's a moral declaration that I will not have God rule over me. So the fool will speak his folly. His heart is busy with iniquity. What's that mean? He's, he's busy sinning. Right? Jesus said that he didn't come to condemn the world because the world's already condemned. Why? Because light came, but men loved the darkness rather than the light. How come? Because their deeds are evil. We, we, mankind likes his sin. <clears throat> what is it that he practices? Look what it says. To practice ungodliness. To utter error concerning the Lord, Yahweh. To leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied. To deprive the thirsty of drink. So as he describes the fool, now this is when the king of righteousness is not on the throne. When the king of righteousness is not on the throne and the government of the land, then the things that mark that government is A, there is no God. B, we love our sin. C, we, we tell lies or utter error about what God's word says. We don't feed the hungry and we don't help the thirsty. So, just so we can be clear, righteousness is not ruling today. Because all of those things are true. Right? We have a declaration of at least two states with upwards of uh, 30 more just chomping at the bit to join in for uh, partial birth and post-birth abortion. That's not just where they're at. If they're asking for it, what's that say about their heart? Where their heart is, what their heart is about. Are, are we feeding the hungry? Are we giving drink to the thirsty? Do we care about the oppressed or the poor? Not as long as the economy is doing good, right? 
So, this is what it looks like when the righteous king does not rule. And I can see those same attitudes in me if I'm not allowing Christ to be king. All of a sudden, sin is king. If Christ is not king, sin is king. The desires of my heart to lead me astray. And nor do I care about my brother. Nor do I care about my sister. Because God is not ruling as king in my heart. I'm not submitted to him. What about the scoundrel? That's the next one. Look at the scoundrel in verse 7. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He wants to do wrong. His plans, wicked. He schemes to ruin the poor with lying words. Even when the plea of the needy is right. So, you know, the, 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 the needy get a raw deal for all time. Except for that period of time when Christ walked on the earth and the needy would run up to him and say, Lord, if you're willing, and he would say, I'm willing, and they would be cleansed, or they would be healed, or they would be fed, or they would be protected. And then I'm pretty sure Jesus said something like, if you come after me, do what? Aren't we supposed to take up our cross and follow Him? Aren't we supposed to do what He did? So didn't He feed the hungry? Didn't He clothe the naked? Didn't He visit those in prison? So the, the idea is that, that when He rules and reigns, this is our attitude. But when He doesn't, what rises up in His place in our life is the fool who acts like there is no God and the scoundrel who makes wicked plans. And in a nation that's not ruled by a righteous king, what rises up is a fool who says there is no God and the scoundrel that makes wicked plans. And I don't care who you put in the chief seat. I'm just saying this is a government that is not submitted, unsubmitted to God. Where where Jesus Christ rules and reigns. This is the government that we're looking for. There's a reason why our governments aren't so strong. If they were strong, what would we do? Would you be looking for Jesus or you'd be looking for more guys like that? But we fail. So what does that cause? That causes our eyes, prayerfully, causes our eyes to be on the Lord. Even though the plea of the needy is right, he doesn't care. The scoundrel doesn't care. He just wants what he wants, right? How much is enough money? In a, in a capitalist system, how much is enough money? How much, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a capitalist, just so you know. So, I'm not, I'm not a socialist. I'm a capitalist, I'm pretty sure. I, I believe in the tenets of capitalism. Let me tell you what I don't believe in. I don't believe in paying a little kid in Indonesia eight cents a month so I can sell shoes for $120 a piece. I don't believe in that. But if the bottom line is profit, isn't that what happens? And then when, that, when, those, when those workers cry out and say, this is not enough, well, they don't care about the cries of the needy, even though they're right. God says there will be a day to give account. There will come a reckoning. Man will give account of the choices he made. And this is what happens when Jesus Christ does not rule and reign. Now, if Jesus Christ rules and reigns in somebody's heart, let's say I'm a businessman, Jesus Christ rules and reigns in my heart, and I pay 
a fair wage for fair day's work. Everybody's in agreement, comes off. Maybe I'll never be as rich as those big companies. Can I have enough? I guess it depends on what our desire is, right? What's our appetite? Is our appetite for honoring God or is our appetite for having a garage full of fancier toys? Because you and I live in the greatest nation on earth currently. we got more stuff than anybody else. I mean, if that's the only category we check, we all have, I think all of us, we have a house we live in. We have heat that heats that house. Most of us don't have to go chop wood. Most of us don't have to shop day by day to hope we get to eat. So all of those things, that, that would say we're in a pretty affluent place. God's blessing perhaps has been on us, but is Jesus Christ King? Then what do we do with our freedom? Because the challenge of God against Judah was they had fullness of food, idleness of time, but they didn't care. They didn't take care of their neighbor. Didn't care about the hungry. Didn't care about the people who were needy. And that's a challenge, right, for those who are being ruled by Christ. If we're being ruled by Christ, how does that change our attitude? Those are questions we need to ask ourselves, right? But ultimately, God says, when the king of righteousness does not rule, productivity doesn't come. Look what it says. Rise up. You women who are at ease, hear my voice, complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In a little more than a year, you will shudder. You complacent women, for the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. So he describes several things. He describes complacency among the women. That's not to be sexist, that that everything with a man is okay. The point is, when things are going well, the, the place where... That affluence could be seen in their culture was when the woman didn't have to go gather. She just could sit around and, and gossip about whatever somebody else was doing. So the, the idea is there's indifference and complacency among the women because of the affluence in the culture. He says there's going to be an insufficiency of the harvest. You're not going to get enough food. There's not enough food coming. You can't see it, but the grape and the fruit harvest is going to fail. And the impact that is going to be on their life, we see in verse 11. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, the complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare. Tie sackcloth around your waist. What is he asking for? What is the symbolism of putting sackcloth on in the Bible? Our sackcloth and ashes were always a symbol of repentance. Of recognizing, saying, you know what I have. I've been focused on my own affluence, my own needs, my own desires. I have been living not as though Christ was king. I've lost my focus. So what does he say? He says, repent. Put on sackcloth. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Put on that sackcloth. And then he says, beat your breast for the pleasant fields and the fruitful vine." You remember the tax collector when Jesus said two men went down to pray? One a tax collector, one a Pharisee. The Pharisee, in essence, goes down and says, God, thank you that I'm not like that dude. And that dude, the (coughs) tax collector, falls on his knees, beats his breast, and cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
And Jesus said, that one has left justified. That one, the one who said, have mercy on me. Does God, will God forgive the nation? We're going to see Judah. Look, these people that, that Isaiah is talking to and the picture that he's painting for them, they're going to be delivered in like five chapters. God's going to deliver them supernaturally. He's going to show them that he's there. He's going to, he's going to answer their prayers. He's going to forgive their sins. All that stuff is still true. But the key to having our sins forgiven is to confess and repent, no? To beat our breast before God and say, man, I messed up again. And to recognize that God doesn't get tired of hearing it because when we'll consistently do it, it shows our own humility. I'm a sinner, Lord. I'm sorry. I'm, forgive me. I want to do better. I want to make better choices. I want to choose better words. I want to have more compassion. I don't want to be apathetic toward my neighbor. God, help me. Give me eyes to see. These are the things he's asking to come from the people who aren't in the place where God is ruling as king. Prior to his rule and reign, beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. <laughs> Verse 13. Beat your breast for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, and for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. So at the same time, you have this call of the Lord to put on sackcloth, to repent, right? To call on the name of the Lord, ask God to forgive, ask God to save. He says at the same time, ask God to forgive the houses that are partying still. That don't recognize that there's anything going on. Is there a better description of our world today? Because it should be the church that's in sackcloth and ashes, right? Saying, Lord, have mercy on us. We're a sinful people. We lost our way and we need your forgiveness. But in that prayer, we're also praying that God forgive us for those who, who can't see, who don't know, who don't care. <clears throat> for the joyful houses, for those who are still ex, uh, exalting uh, and, uh, and being exultant. And then he says in verse 14, For the palace is forsaken. The palace is forsaken. At what point, when we, when we look at the government of a rebellious land, at what point is the palace forsaken? Now, God never tells us to stop praying for the king, right? Even King Ahab. God never tells us to stop praying. To stop praying, you and I. He, he might have told Jeremiah, he might have told Ezekiel, but he doesn't give us a pass. So he tells us, pray for the peace of your city. Pray for the peace of your nation. Pray for the wisdom of your rulers. Pray for your leadership. But at some point, Scripture teaches us that the palace is forsaken. I'm always reminded, when I think of that word, I always think of when Jesus walked away before his arrest, you know, the night when he had the Last Supper, and he leaves the temple area for the last time, and he says to the people, See, your house is left to you desolate, forsaken. Before he said, this is my house. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer. 
Prior to that, he said, this is my father's house. My father's house is supposed to be a place of prayer, right? But when he leaves the last time, he says, see, your house is left to you. That's not my place no more. <clears throat> the rejection is complete, right? The next event is the crucifixion. The next event is the sacrifice on the cross. So as he's going from that place, one of the interesting things that Isaiah says here is, the palace is forsaken. Now for them, there comes a time, not under Hezekiah, Hezekiah is going to turn toward the Lord, but there comes a time when their palace no longer will hear the voice of God. Now I don't think we're in that place yet. Uh, as far as I can tell, there are still godly counselors around the highest office in the land, right? And as long as there's at least the opportunity for, for the prophets of God to speak to the king, then there's a chance for the king to do what's right, right? But there comes a day, there comes a day when the palace is forsaken. In our land, we're not that far from the things we think we ought to be doing as believers of uh, being declared hate crimes. You're not that far. You cannot share with someone, Romans chapter 1, in Canada. In fact, you cannot teach a conference there and tell them that's what you're going to do when you cross the border. Don't believe me? Try it. When they ask you what you're doing when you come into Canada, you go, you go ahead and tell them. You're speaking at a conference on the sinfulness of homosexuality. See what happens. I bet you don't get in. Because in Canada, that's a hate crime. So we're not, how close are we to them? Similar governments? No, similar, right? They're like England. So when we look at and we see, we see some of the same movements in our land, no? All, all I notice is every time one side or the other is talking, the, there, someone is being accused of a hate crime. If you disagree with someone, it's a hate crime. If I have a different opinion, it's a hate crime. Those days are going to come, and when they do, the palace will be forsaken. The populous city will be deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. <clears throat> a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks, means the cities will be abandoned. It all comes crashing down. But every time God, as He talks about the righteous king ruling and reigning, and then He talks about the sinfulness of where we are now, right? and our question is, how do we get from where we are now to what God was just talking about, while well, we do what Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, we come before God and we say, Lord, I am, a, I am a, I'm a wretch. Lord, I need saved. And God takes a coal from the altar and cleanses our sins. That's what He did for Isaiah, right? In our case, He takes the blood of Jesus Christ and He applies it to our life. And we're made white as snow. We're set free. That's how we move from one to the other. But in each place... God will also give us a, 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 a point of hope. Look at verse 15. So we're, the palace is forsaken, the city is deserted, the hill and the watchtower have become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until 
the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. So good news, the Spirit has been poured out upon us from on high. The Spirit was poured out on the earth on the day of Pentecost. According to Romans 5, chapter 1, the, the, the love of God is poured out in our lives by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 5, first five verses in Romans chapter 5. The, the power of God, the Spirit of God has been poured out on His people. So we have the things necessary to respond, to allow the King to rule and reign in our life. He says, when that happens, a wilderness will become a fruitful field. And the fruitful field will become a forest. All the things that kind of fell to waste are going to come back to life. In yours and my life, when we are under the control of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in our life, your life is more fruitful. Jesus Christ is King. And you're empowered to be and to do the things that God wants to be and do with you. In verse 17 he says, And the effect of righteousness will be peace. Ultimately, that's what everybody would like. I don't know anybody who wakes up in the morning and wrings their hands together and says, Man, I can't wait for a confrontation today. Okay, one person. The rest of us... (laughs) We don't want confrontation. I want peace. I'd like to just be left alone, if I'm honest. But the reality is, hey, if I want that, then i got to walk in righteousness. Jesus Christ has to be my king. The Spirit has to have descended in my life, and I have to find myself under His power and control. And now, it's fruitful. And one day, that will happen in the nation. One day, righteousness will reign. The Holy Spirit has descended upon the church, but there will be a day when everyone on earth will either be full of the Spirit or they won't be here. Right? We, we, we see that this day, there is a day that will come that looks like that. The result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. Won't that be nice? Quietness and trust. What's it like if you left, you could leave... Leave your house open. Leave keys in your car. Leave money laying out on the grass. Never had to worry about it. Nobody's going to steal bikes. Nobody's going to steal stuff. Nobody's going to take anything. Because we just live in quietness and trust forever. Because everybody is submitted to the king. And the king rules and reigns. And the spirit is descended. And we're empowered to be the men and women God wants us to be. Folks, that's utopia. But it occurs not under the rulership of man. It will occur under the rulership of God. When God dwells on high. My people will abide in peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. So every time God says, well, here's where you are, and here's where I see you going, but then He reminds us that one day, this is where we're going to be. One day, God always wants to leave us with that, with that hope that says, this is not the end. The end is not, is not dismay. The end is not destruction. The end is a new heaven and a new earth. The end is a new king who rules and reigns forever. The end is perfect peace. The end is... Eternity with Him. 
eternity with the Lord, keeping our eyes focused upon Him, dwelling in peace, being secure in a quiet place. Now, I don't know if that means there won't be any loud music because there's other places where it says it's going to be loud. Everybody praising. Everybody singing. Everybody shouting. So I think there's going to be times where it's rowdy and times where it's quiet. I know a lot of people get paranoid. We start talking about heaven and we start talking about it in heavenly terms and we all get this picture of of uh, two little white wings on a fat angel body and a harp that we play floating around in the sky singing songs we don't like. That's not what heaven is. When God, I believe, when God created the heavens and the earth, He created the heaven for heavenly beings. He created the earth for earthly beings. Last I checked, we were earthly. Every time I think of heaven, I always picture it as some beautiful thing I've seen somewhere on the earth before. And God would say, yeah, it'll be like that, only better. Because eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard the things that God has planned for those who love Him. That's a... Spirit of God has revealed these things. We know. We know that these are the things that we are or were created for. The Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth. New heaven for the elect angels. A new earth for saved mankind. And a new Jerusalem that hovers between the two. Where we meet and hang out with one another. The dwelling place of the bride of the, of the Lamb of God. Right? The new Jerusalem. All of these things are designed to picture this this utopic view of what happens when the righteous king rules. Now, we can stay focused on that for the physical reality and look forward to a day when that happens in reality. Or maybe we can apply the spiritual reality in our life now. Is Jesus Christ king in your heart? Does he rule or does the fool? Does he rule or does the scoundrel? If the scoundrel does, all that we have to do, right, is hear what he said. Clothe yourself in sackcloth. Beat your breast. Call out on the Lord and he'll forgive. He'll restore. He'll bless again. How many times? Well, I don't know. When when Peter asked the Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? What did God say? Seventy times seven. Four hundred and ninety times. I'll lose count before I ever get to four hundred and ninety, just so you know. I don't know. God doesn't. What's the point? Seventy times seven. What's he saying? What we need to understand is that God forgave the nation of Israel for four hundred and ninety years. 490 years they failed to keep the Sabbath year. So when Babylon takes him into captivity, that we'll read about later on in Isaiah, when Babylon takes him into captivity for 70 years, it's for each of the Sabbath years that the people didn't give to the Lord. Now, what? don't we all like vacation? Is there anybody who does not like vacation? So, everybody likes it. So would it it be such a drag to get a year off with pay? That's the Sabbath year. The Sabbath year was you work, okay, well you worked in the field for six days, 
And God said, on the sixth day, I'll give you enough to carry you over so you don't have to work the seventh day. And then God said, you work for six years. And on the sixth year, I'll give you enough so you don't have to work the seventh year. What's he teaching the people to do? Trust me. Trust me. But they never did it. So at the end of 490 years, God called the debt due. And he says to Peter, you do it like that. 70 times 7. So if any of you are going to live 490 years doing the same thing, your marker will get called due. But most of you are only going to live 70 or 80, so you'll be short of your 490 years. I think you'll be forgiven. Call on his name, and he will forgive. He will restore. He will renew. He will help you dwell in peace and security. That's the promise that he's given here. In 19 it says, And it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters and who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. He says, hey man, it's all going to come down. The city and the forest together. But the land is going to produce. The city will be laid low, but in those days, you're not going to need the city. You'll be able to be out in the open. Out on the open land, on the open range, you won't have to be afraid anymore. Because God's judgment never removes God's peace. God's judgment never stops God's blessing. The point is, God is always moving to a climax in which evil is put down and good reigns. Righteousness reigns. He's a good king. Worthy of our praise. He's a good king. Worthy of our submission. And Isaiah wants the people of Judah and you and I to know. If we submit to the king, we can expect one day all those things to come together. We have a hope for the day. When God says there will be no more tears nor mourning, nor sorrow, nor sickness, nor pain. All the former things will be washed away. Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. That's a good enough hope for me. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time, for the opportunity. Study your word, Lord God, to look at what Scripture lays out for us in the book of Isaiah. God, I pray that we would be able to set down our roots in the truth that your word declares. God, that we would hold fast to, uh, to the reality that we need a righteous king. That while you want us engaged in life here, you want your people submitted to our king. You want righteousness and justice to reign in my life. You want me to be the the picture of what the heart of the king ought to be like. Yeah, Lord, you want us to show that so that that example becomes evident in all those 
who will see. So God, I pray for the day when the righteous king will reign. I pray that our hope and trust won't be in any other king, but the king Jesus. And Lord, that you rule and reign in our life, God, that you would be glorified and magnified in our lives, that we would exalt you and extol you, and most importantly, that we would obey you and follow you, and that you be glorified in the lives we live out before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.